from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and make a positive impact on the world around us. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the data-driven approach to gender equality. You know, in our conversations about advancing women at work, it seems like we've got two big streams of conversation. Um, And a lot of women are actually very tired of the first one, which is how can we change ourselves to navigate a biased world? But the other stream of conversation is how do we change the world we live in to be less biased? Um, Changing that landscape, changing how our organizations operate has always certainly seemed like the more powerful but truly elusive goal. Partly because it requires that the organizations or the societies in which they live actually want to change, which we know has been a painfully slow process and frustratingly seems to get slower sometimes. But it's also because creating true gender equality, even in those organizations who are deeply committed to it, is really hard. We all, individually and collectively, are up against a myriad of biases in how we think about each other and in how we make decisions that undermine even the best intentions. The good news is that thanks to the work of behavioral scientists, psychologists, behavioral economists, we have new tools to both identify those biases and learn how to protect ourselves from their unintended impact. Helping us learn about all of this today is the brilliant Iris Bonet. Um, Iris is the professor of public policy and director of the Women in Public Policy program at Harvard University and author of the amazing book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. Our phones are open and we are taking calls at 844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So if you have a question for Iris, particularly about biases, you want to understand your own, other people's, what we could do about them, please give us a call. We'd really love to have you join the conversation. Once again, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also send us email. For those of you who may be listening in your, with your earbuds on your computers at work, you can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And if you're listening to us sometime other than today, Wednesday at 4 o'clock Eastern time, um, you can write in and we'll answer your questions on next week's show. So Iris Bonet, professor of public policy and director of the Women in Public Policy program at Harvard University, um, has written this amazing book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. Um, She is a behavioral economist at Harvard's Kennedy School and combines insights from economics and psychology to improve decision making in organizations and society often with a gender or cross-cultural perspective. Her most recent research examines behavioral design to de-bias how we live, learn, and work, and she advises governments and companies around the world on the topic. Professor Bonet is also co-chair of the Behavioral Insights Group and associate director of the Harvard Decision Science Laboratory and the faculty chair of the executive program Global Leadership and Public Policy for the 21st Century for the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders. She's a co-chair of the Global Future Council on Behavioral Science of the World Economic Forum and serves on the boards or advisory boards of Credit Suisse Group, Applied, and Edge. And she served in her own share of leadership roles, including that of Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School. So I can't think of a more qualified, brilliant person to lead us in this conversation. So with that, I'd like to say, Iris, welcome to Women at Work. 
Well, thank you very much for this very kind introduction, Laura. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Well, thank you. So I want to start off by saying we know we have biases. Often we talk about them as unconscious biases about all too often it focuses specifically on things like accepting women in leadership roles. But from what I understand, our biases are much more complex and numerous than that. Can you help us understand kind of what we're up against? Well, let me ask you a question, Laura. When I ask you about who you think of when I say Florida, who would you think of? Uh, my mom and dad and my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, you're my perfect subject <laughs> for this little experiment. Um, no, but I asked you the question um, because certain names, certain geographical regions, uh, certain, you know, just anything um, that I might mention to you um, lead to associations in your mind mm -hmm. with people, with things, with feelings, with impressions. And when I say Florida, most people in the United States and really in many other parts of the world think of elderly people, of people older than 65. But it turns out that that's actually a wrong stereotype. That's a wrong belief in that more than 80% of people living in Florida are in fact younger than 65. So a majority of Floridians are younger than 65. But when I ask you about who you think of, then you don't think of that 80%. No. That is called the availability bias. Um, certain information is more available in our minds, maybe in your case because of your parents or your grandparents. But for all of us, um, there's a relative or a friend or you know somebody we know of uh, who might have a vacation home or live in Florida that we think of. So these biases are um, you know, quite widespread. They apply to lots of different domains, way beyond gender, beyond race, beyond nationality. Um, and they have something to do with how our minds work. So do they also affect not just how we perceive things, but how we make decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So an other bias um, is called anchoring. And that is a, a technique, even it's not just a bias, it's a technique that some of us, in fact, use when we are in negotiations, where we throw a number um, at a seller, for example, and, uh, for example, we might negotiate for a rock, just to go for a very stereotypical example, in a bazaar, and we throw out a number which um, presumably has something to do with our willingness to pay. But it's also, and that's why it's called anchoring, it's also an anchor that I throw at the other person. I know that that person will not be able to forget that number, that anchor, and might well use that number maybe to split the difference, but just to kind of adjust. Uh, how much they might be able to um, demand for, you know, this particular rock that I'm not, just not talking about. So, yes, they apply in many different ways, and we, we also sometimes use them strategically. Ah, so sometimes we use them purposefully, and sometimes purposefully well, and purposely not so well? <laughs> um, you know, uh, truth be told... Um, in most cases, uh, we are pretty much unaware that this is happening. So, for example, the availability bias, uh, most people are not aware that they use something that is salient in our minds, that it is easily um, recognizable, mm -hmm. that we can remember easily, and use this um, to make inferences about likelihood of something occurring. That's exactly the Florida example. I think very, very few people would actually be <laughs> aware that that's happening. And so most biases um, 
uh, work like this that we are not really aware that we fall prey to them. Uh, you know, another bias, for example, is called confirmation bias. And what it says is that we tend to look for confirming evidence. So we might have a theory, a hypothesis, some assumptions about the world. It doesn't have to be formal. So hypothesis sounds very formal, not just in research, just more generally. I enter a meeting and I'm kind of thinking we should hire, you know, person X, for example. Um, so that's kind of my, my starting point. And given that this is my starting point, now I unconsciously look for evidence that confirms that starting point. And even though I don't do this consciously, unconsciously, I, I listen more carefully uh, to people who confirm uh, the views that I hold and I kind of discount or don't pay attention to uh, arguments that uh, would favor another candidate. For so that's why two of us could be in the same meeting. Um, where we're having a debate on, say, whether to hire the man or the woman candidate. And depending on what our belief was going into it, we may have only heard the parts of the argument that reinforced the belief we walked in with. That's exactly right. In fact, with my students, what I do is I give them a legal case uh, with a plaintiff and a defendant, and one group has to play the plaintiff and the other group has to play the defendant. Um, They don't know that they all have exactly the same information. So they have like 30 um, pages of briefings on the case. Um, but then they go into the negotiation, either being the plaintiff or defendant, and they recall very different pieces of information depending on the position that they have to take. So if we want to get around this so that when we're making decisions, particularly around other people, we're being fair, we're considering the whole picture and not just the one that we want, how do we go about changing so a first thing that is that diversity, in fact, is a good thing. So homogenous groups have one advantage, <laughs> namely that they often make um, our lives easier. It often is easier to talk to people who look like we do, who think like we um, think. Um, but if we look at the evidence on team performance, it does turn out that diverse teams with cognitive diversity, um, also with demographic diversity, outperform homogenous teams. And one of the advantages is that there are different people who hear different pieces um, of the information shared in a meeting, um, in the meeting that we just talked about, uh, and therefore will kind of make the pie bigger than if we all just focused on one slice of the pie. So this is a case where if we want to change how we're listening and how we're making decisions, we can actually engineer some of that by putting other people in the room who are different than us? That's right. Um, But we can do more. So I don't want to leave the impression that it's just numbers. So numbers are important. Uh, People who think differently from us, um, that is important. It's also important to have enough of the, so to speak, other thinkers. Uh, What I mean with that is critical mass is important. So most of us, uh, most of our listeners will have been in a room at one point in their lives where they were the only one, the only African-American, the only woman, the only Swiss, whatever it might be. And then uh, it's very likely that they will be taken for a token um, in that instance. So it is numbers. It's also relative numbers. And then thirdly, it's also the rules of the game. Ah, so um, so when we're talking about those numbers, um, I want to relate this to something I read in the book. So when we're building teams in an organization, um, 
if we really want to diversify the teams, we have to look at balance within the team so that we're not putting just one woman on a team of eight men or just one African-American on a team of, say, seven Asian people, because then it's not going to diversify it. They're going to stand out and they're going to be the token, meaning that they represent their group instead of having a truly respected, unique voice in the room. That's exactly right, because the African-American who you just mentioned might be an engineer and wants to be and should be on the team for his or her expertise. But given that uh, she has, he or she has this very salient feature, uh, what you just described is very likely to happen, that we ask him or her to represent this particular demographic group that he or she is part of. And that's the, the visible one that makes him or her different and not the expertise of being the engineer. That's right. Which is rarely we need them. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Iris Bonet. Iris is the professor of public policy at Harvard and author of the book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. If you have a question about biases, you want to talk to Iris about decoding how this works, how we can de-bias ourselves, give us a call. We are at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And by the way, we have John calling in from Michigan. John, thanks so much for first listening to Women at Work and calling in. What's on your mind today? Thank you for taking my call. My question is, uh, a lot of uh, people come to America with different cultures. There are cultures that value education. There are cultures that value the elderly. What is, uh, you know, there's culturalism and racism. What To what degree is it socially acceptable to prejudge people's cultures? Thank you very much for your question, John. That's, that's a great question. So first of all, um, I don't think prejudging people generally is a good idea, um, whether it is this culture or race or gender, um, because that's, of course, the stereotypes that we're up against. Now, having said that, I don't think it's a good idea. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Um, so cultural stereotypes are well in the life, as are racial and as are gender stereotypes. Um, but, you know, our nation, I think, is priding ourselves and has been priding ourselves that it's, it's a nation of ideas and ideals. And so that we stand for some, um, you know, relatively basic ideas that um, join us together and they include equal opportunity for everyone. And so I think that different cultures, um, to the degree that uh, they want to fit in into those ideals, um, that's a great thing. That is a great thing. I think equal opportunity for everyone is something that we should be very proud of and that should be you know, a cultural ideal for this country. But then, other than that, honestly, I think um, this country is so great because we do have the benefit from diversity of these very, very different cultures. Thank you very much for answering that. And John, thanks so much for calling. If you want to join in the conversation, we are at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Ira, something that I found interesting about John's question is that whether it's culture or our races or our gender or our educational backgrounds, scientists versus artists, these are all... um, in some ways, identifying characteristics. But if we focus on them too heavily, they can be really limiting in what we can contribute and where we're given room to grow. As we're... Go ahead. No, no, no. But um, I I, I just wanted to agree with you that um, it's actually very, very important to remind ourselves that 
we don't only have one identity. But mm. of course, we consist of lots of different identities. But what is important is also that there are conditions in our environment that might activate certain parts of our identity. That can be, for example, a painting on the wall or just something that reminds me of a, you know, a certain, you know, even a small fraction of who I am. An early experiment on that, in fact, I mean, that might actually be helpful if I describe the experiment because I think it's a very important phenomenon that the listeners might benefit from knowing about. It's called stereotype threat. And an early experiment to kind of understand how that might work um, was conducted with girls who were um, eight years, nine years, 10 years old. And what the girls had to do in the experiment was solve a math problem. It was the same math problem for everyone, but then there were three conditions. Before the girls participate in the math task, they either had to color a book that reminded them of their gender identity. Um, so there were puppets in there and strollers and other things that are traditionally associated with, you know, with girls rather than with boys. Then another group, and I should say all of these girls were Asian-American girls, then another group of the girls um, had to color something that reminded them of their Asian-ness. And that had to do with chopsticks and other stereotypical things. Um, but that activated their identity of being Asian. And then the third group had to color a landscape. So that was kind of the neutral control mm-hmm. group. And what the researchers found was that girls which were reminded of their Asian identity outperformed the girls who were reminded of their gender identity. Because traditionally, in our minds, we're associating women um, with not being stellar in math, but Asians with being very good at math. And so that's what we call stereotype threat, that there can be things in our environment which activate certain parts of our identity and might actually affect our performance. So in a way, if we um, surround people with reminders of one aspect of their identity, it might act, might actually make it more dominant than it would be otherwise and erode other parts of their identity. That's exactly right. And we also have to pay attention that, you know, think of the portraits that uh, might be on your wall and Wharton's wall and Harvard's wall or in any organization's <laughs> wall. That I've jokingly you know, call like the Hall of Dead White Guys. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, yeah, um, who are they supporting? Who, what kind of story do they tell? Um, you know, in our context, our students, um, what role models um, do we portray on our walls? I mean, sadly, it's a story I also talk about in the book, and sadly, it's now only, I think, 12 years ago that at the Kennedy School, we realized that um, of the many portraits of leaders that we have on our walls, exactly zero were of female leaders. And this is despite the fact that we have 50% women students, and that I think I can attest that we didn't consciously want to signal to our women, to our female students, that they were not made to be leaders. We've changed that since, <laughs> um, but I do think it's a good lesson um, for many other organizations as well. So I want to um, dig into this a little bit, because there are a couple of things about this that are really interesting. So one is, those portraits are an artifact of the past. However, they're also an opportunity for us to consider what kind of messaging we're presenting to the future. And so under that category, you can't be it if you don't see it. Um, we're, we're not sending a message that women or um, non-white people could be members of that esteemed hallway of leaders of these organizations. Um, so do you think that there's a, a real impact then to making a concerted effort to put other role models up there? 
Absolutely. And you know, in all honesty, I mean, I, I respect history, but sometimes we have to hurry history a little bit. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it, many of these portraits are kind of choices. So it turns out that, you know, in front of the dean's office, we used to have the portraits of previous deans. Now, they all were white men, but nobody dictates that uh, all of these uh, images in front of his office is another other man now, but right, it's not in the faculty practice. handbook that that has to be hung that way. Yeah, no. So now it actually is representative of the community. So the images now in front of his office um, include everyone on campus: staff, students, faculty. So it's a much more diverse image. I, it actually communicates something different, I think, also about the institution. So yes, that is a choice, and you know, while. This is just an example. There is actually very good research, uh, not just the one that I just described before on the Asian girls, that suggests that the images that surround us um, do activate certain parts of our identity and make us stronger or weaker, depending on which part it is. So that there really is evidence that demonstrates that if we expose, let's say, um, young girls to images of women leaders or underrepresented groups, to pictures of leaders that look like them, um, it actually may help inspire them to seek leadership roles and believe that they could inhabit those roles? Yeah, one of um, the studies looked at the quality of the speeches that men and women gave depending on an image that they were shown beforehand, uh, what either, either an image of a male leader or a female leader, depending on um, their own sex. And it turns out that in particular for women, it also had a little bit of an effect on the men, but it had a bigger effect on the women because there are so few female um, leaders as role models available that had a stronger effect on the women um, and the women who had seen the image of a strong female leader beforehand, in fact, gave objectively rated stronger speeches. That's really powerful because that's not about a long-term impact. That's immediate. That can that can be immediate. But anyone who's ever done communication training, and probably many of your listeners have, uh, might recall um, something that I recall from my own communication training, and that is um, I was 20, and um, I was at some conference when I was a student. In any case, what the trainer told me at the time was to remember, before I go on stage or give a talk, remember a time when you felt extremely powerful, uh, you know, in whatever instance that was. And I still do that today, kind of thinking of that time. And um, so it can be, and you know, Whatever the image is that gives us that power, it can be another role model. It could be, you know, something else that people might be able to recall. But I think that's the trick, that in the moment, um, that helps you feel and be more powerful. And so if we want to engineer our environments, so one thing is conjuring images that we know can inspire us, particularly before public speaking or being in front of an audience in some way. But as we think about the environments that we build, whether it's for our children, um, the people we teach, um, our employees, the organizations we work in, that when we put images up, they can positively impact both the ambitions and the performance of the people who take them in. That's right. Um, but of course, you know, images is, uh, should I say, a shortcut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's a small remedy. <laughs> so we don't want to suggest um, that 
you know, not ha- I mean, this is not a substitute for having real role models. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, that, that's all I wanted to say. No, um, and, and that's and an excellent point. Right, because we can't say, okay, change the art, we're done, problem yeah. solved. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and, you know, the evidence on role models is also actually quite good, and it comes from a, you know, actually from, from a very different place, from India. India was one of the first countries to introduce quotas for politicians, and in fact, for local village heads, for, for mayors. And what was beautiful from a research perspective was that a third of the villages had to have um, female mayors, and the third was picked out of a hat, so it was chosen randomly. So therefore, researchers could actually kind of say, you know, what difference does difference really make? It wasn't that self-selected cities or towns, which already might have been particular gender equal, um, were, were thrown into that bucket, but it was truly a random um, subsample. And it turns out, um, and that might also be interesting for for our listeners, that it wasn't the first woman who had the biggest impact. So the first female mayor um, already, in fact, provided more public goods than her male counterparts, researched by Esther Gaflow and others from um, MIT has shown, but she wasn't perceived as being effective, nor did she herself um, believe in herself. So wait, um, I want to make sure I've got that. So the first woman mayor... Um, while she performed exceptionally well, was not perceived as performing exceptionally well. That's exactly by right. herself or others. That's exactly right. Sounds a little so familiar to still... things that have happened in this country. Yeah, <laughs> too new, right? Exactly. Too new. Yes, too country stereotypical. Just yeah, too many um, barriers to overcome. Um, but it was the second woman. So two women in a row in villages, which have had two female leaders in those now about twenty. It was ninety three, so about twenty four years or so. Um, the villages which have had at least two or more female leaders, stereotypes have started to change to the degree that now parents perceive as one of their core career aspirations for their daughters to become politicians. That's fascinating. So that shows the power that, well, so there's a tremendous importance, A, to the first person to break the mold because we have to see somebody in that role and we can't measure the success only by how they are perceived but to realize that they're going to normalize and change our norm for who can be a leader yes quite truly we are standing on the shoulders of giants which have come before us it's so true it's amazing so when we think about what we lost Um, when we don't have women running for office in our own country, it's not only that we're losing their service, but we're not getting a role model that can let other generations know that that's a position to embrace and to aspire towards. Yes, that is so true. Uh, We're actually offering an extracurricular program here at the Women in Public Policy program, which is called From Harvard Square to the Oval Office. And it's a training program. It sounds very American. Um, (laughs) It is American, but um, about... Uh, a third or so of the participants are non-American. So uh, I'm, I'm mentioning this just to say that anyone who wants to run for office anywhere in the world, um, you know, can take the program. And it, it has been very, very popular, um, uh, particularly for women who think about a future um, political career. Oh, my God. That is powerful. Um, We need to take a short break, but stay with us. When we get back, we're going to talk more about how we can engineer solutions to overcome bias in our environments and encourage um, the kind of progress that we're all seeking in the world that we live in. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here here on Sirius XM 111. And if you want to give us a call while we're on break, it's 844-942-7866. That's 1-844-WARTON. We'll be back in a minute.
You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize their contribution to the world that we live in. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Iris Bonet. Iris is a professor of public policy and director of the Women in Public Policy program at Harvard University. She is also the author of an amazing book called What Works? Gender Equality by Design. If you want to join in the conversation, um, help us us explore these issues of our unconscious biases and how we can work around them, Um, or you have questions for Iris, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Before the break, we were talking about the nature of our biases and some important ways that by changing the way we make decisions by who we see as role models, the things that we put in our environment, um, we can have a big change on the world around us. And yet also the need for lots of small changes that permeate our organizations to really change what's been an intractable problem. Um, So with that, I'd like to welcome Iris back to the show. Iris, we're thrilled to have you here on Women at Work. Thank you very much for having me. Um, When we were talking before about um, the changes that were happening in India, And through this kind of study where you could see in a mandate to have X number of women mayors and um, how that unfolded and what the impact was. It made me wonder about quotas within our own organizations. Um, We know that lots of other countries have quotas about women on boards. um, And here it's something that we're less inclined to do. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about quotas and data and how we should be using them to move towards gender equality? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so first of all, I should mention that uh, behavioral design, um, that the ideas that I'm offering in my book are in many ways an alternative to quotas. And so, I mean, we'll get there in a moment. So I won't <laughs> talk too much about behavioral design, but um, uh, because I, I do want to tell you a little bit about what we know about quotas. I mean, the big advantage of quotas, um, and that's, of course, what India is teaching us, is that quotas change numbers very, very quickly, and they change what we see. And therefore, what we can imagine uh, possible for ourselves. So that is probably one of the biggest advantages of quotas. Um, Now, the other country which has been at the forefront of quotas is Norway, because Norway has introduced quotas for its corporate boards between 2003 and 2006, where um, they now require uh, publicly listed companies to have at least 40% um, of either gender um, represented on their boards. And the evidence there is a bit more mixed in that uh, two things have um, kind of happened. Um, The first one we might be able to explain. The first um, piece of evidence is that the quotas, in fact, have had a negative impact on company performance. And the question, of course, is why? Um, And that's a very hard question. But the two um, uh, most important contenders, I think, for for, um, the right answer are, first, that there's quite a bit of evidence out there that new teams rarely outperform old teams. Mm. That means when you're next on a plane, you really want to have a crew that um, is not completely new. 
where people have been flying with each other beforehand because they'll just know certain things and coordination costs will, will just be much lower. So it could just be newness um, of the team. So we don't know whether it's the women or whether it's actually newness um, that made those teams kind of perform in a different way. The other thing which the researchers have found, of course, is that the introduction of quotas in Norway was almost completely um, correlated with the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. And that was a time when many companies um, could only survive or could boost their performance by firing people. And the researchers have found that the women directors were less willing to let people go than their male counterparts. So, you know, as always, the devil is in detail. (laughs) (laughs) There are pros and cons to quotas, but they do change numbers very quickly. And as you mentioned before, they also draw our attention um, to actual numbers, to actual data. And that, I think, is, I mean, another kind of big consideration that we should have, you know, independent of whether we like quotas or not. But generally, um, good governance, whether this is in the public sector and the private sector, means understanding what's going on and measuring what's broken and then actually fixing um, the kinds of things that are broken. That's why I'm a big fan um, of data. I'm a big fan of people analytics, of what you're doing at Wharton, really helping our people management um, improve and bring the same kind of rigor to people management uh, that we also apply in our finance departments and often even in our marketing departments. Yes, and across organizations in other business areas. And, you know, we we often say we can't manage what we don't measure. Um, and we also need the data to know what we need the evidence of what's going on in our organization. So um, I think you and I are both aligned in saying reporting matters. And reporting on the characteristics of our workforce matters. And if we lose it, which is something that's currently being discussed, um, that could really be a step backwards in trying to create more inclusive workplaces. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the big challenges really that we've had in the past, I would say, 50 to 60 years, I mean, really since the civil rights movement is that we have to, we have been trying really hard and well-intentioned people have been trying really hard um, to overcome some of the inequities that many people in this country and across the world have been facing. But in many ways, um, I argue in my book, we have been throwing money at the problem without really measuring uh, what impact it really has. And so, for example, sadly enough, diversity training um, does not seem to be working quite as well. I know. Isn't that frustrating? And so many people have put effort into it. It is very sad. Uh, Now, I have to say, as a behavioral scientist, I'm not completely surprised because our minds are just pretty stubborn beasts. And (laughs) it's generally hard, you know, to unbias our minds. Um, And that's why I, I, you know, while I find it very sad... um, I am not completely surprised uh, because even well-intentioned people, uh, you know, get things wrong. And not just in the gender diversity space, but also, you know, many of us have um, good intentions to have salad for dinner and then, you know, we have that bowl of pasta in front of us and can't resist. (laughs) Or we plan to go jogging tonight and then there's this TV show that just seems more attractive in the moment. So it's actually hard to live up to our virtuous intentions. So... One of the things that I found particularly um, tangible in the book, um, one of the places that made me feel like, wow, I could implement this in my real world tomorrow, was a section that you wrote about interview processes. 
Um, and because that's a, a process, you know, we conduct interviews all the time. We're constantly hiring. We know that hiring well is critical to the success of our organization. Yet somehow we all do it in amazingly ineffective ways. Could mm-hmm. you talk, walk us through um, your suggestions for designing an interview process that can avoid some of the traps of our own biases and habits? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I'm going to walk you through um, my own hiring process. I mean, I recently hired an executive assistant and just applied some of my own kind of insights uh, uh, to this hiring process. So first of all, I have to um, tell you, I was um, quite driven by the insight that the instrument that we use most, namely the unstructured interview, is quite possibly the worst predictor of future performance. (laughs) Okay. So we're up against, you know, we're up against um, quite a bit, quite a lot here. So, but what did we actually do? So the first thing we did was um, we looked at our job ad. So it actually starts with the language, the requirements, what we put into a job advertisement. It turns out that uh, our language can be biased or can be gendered. And so if I use words such as um, warm or caring, considerate, collaborative, etc., uh, we can show that this is more likely to attract women. And if I use words such as assertive and leader and competitive, this is more likely to attract men. So the first thing we did is we de-biased the language in our job advertisements. And that's actually something that, you know, everyone can do because there's now software out there which allows people to run it um, over any text, not just job advertisements, but yes. any text and make sure that they use inclusive language. And as so a matter of so I just sorry to interrupt, but... Um, Kirsten Snyder, who runs Textio, which is one of those um, debiasing systems. She was a guest on the show. She's a Penn alumna. Um, and if organizations are interested, Textio does an amazing job of looking at language in your job advertisements. Absolutely. Kieran is amazing. And um, yes, I'm a big fan um, of Textio. And there's a number of others, uh, Applied or um, Talent Sonar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, our listeners should check them out. There's really a lot happening right now in the tech startup space where young entrepreneurs such as Kieran put their mind uh, to helping all of us um, solve these these problems. Absolutely. But now back to you and your search for an executive <laughs> no, assistant. No, 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 no. <laughs> that is great. Um, uh, so, yes. So we devised the job advertisements. Um then we um, looked at all people's um, applications and resumes, but before we did that, we blinded ourselves to their names, where they came from, and even where they went to school. And uh, so that is actually quite an interesting exercise. I have to say, personally, I didn't mind at all not knowing somebody's name, um, gender, race, nationality. I didn't but care about that It must at have all. been hard to not know their school. No, exactly. But I, so this was, you know, it, there's no science which can tell you what exactly you should blind yourself. Um, uh, so definitely demographic characteristics. But I, I was just curious to see um, what this would do to me if I um, downplayed the CV. And I'll tell you in a moment why we downplayed the CV. I didn't want the CV um, to play such an important role um, because we had another instrument that is much more predictive, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but I just wanted to tell you how we did that. So we, 
um, we put a code number on every CV and we rated the CVs from one to 10. Um, and then we put them into a box. And then, and that's why I didn't want um, to know people's school, um, I had everyone participate in a work sample test. What that means is I spent quite a bit of time kind of thinking about what kinds of tasks uh, will this person, this future executive assistant, actually have to complete? What is this job? And uh, so every um, applicant participated in a two-hour online test, so to speak. And the test consists of a number of tasks. So, for example, one of the tasks that I designed was a scheduling task. Uh, because I travel quite a bit, and the logistics of my travel are actually quite important to me. And they're not just, you know, booking flights, etc., but also which presentation do I have to give, what preparation do I need, who, who, do I, who am I meeting with, and, you know, so going to New York and then to London and to Zurich. So it was kind of a, a real trip that the people had to plan. And, of course, they couldn't know everything, but I was curious kind of to see uh, with what kind of scrutiny and depth uh, our applicants would go about this task. And then we had you know, a number of other tasks. But that's, um, that was my most important kind of tool mm-hmm. um, to hire somebody. I also gave it kind of 50% of the final score um, in the end. So that was the um, third thing we did was a work sample test. And then finally, I interviewed everyone, <laughs> even though I know interviews um, <laughs> are bad. But... Uh, I did help myself a bit in that I moved from an unstructured interview to a structured interview. And the structured interview is different from the unstructured one in that uh, I, as the interviewer, have to think about the questions that I want to ask beforehand. And I have to ask the same set of questions in the same order uh, with all of the applicants that I talk to. And I told actually everyone that that's what I was doing. So it was, you know, initially it was a bit strange. They came in and I said, you know, hello. Um, I have, pro- I certainly have seen your CV, but I don't actually know, you know, <laughs> who you are in that <laughs> sense. So, um, so my first question is, you know, t- tell me a bit more about that. But um, I also will, will ask you five questions. I ask everyone the same five questions, and um, here's how this works. And then at the end, um, uh, I'm very happy to kind of to close the interview book, and uh, we can have an unstructured discussion where you can ask me anything you want to about Harvard, about myself, about the job. Um, we can have that kind of free flow discussion, but that's no longer part of the evaluation process. That's more and, just relationship building, yeah, but it's not a criteria building. for evaluation. And I think everyone kind of knows that an interview is about the evaluation of the applicant, but it's also about the applicant, of course, getting to know uh, the job yes. and the new boss and the organization, right? So it's, it's a bit of a... It's, it's a bit You're of recruiting them as much as they're applying to you. That's exactly right. And so it's a bit of both. So it has to be room for both, but we just make, have to make sure that in our minds, the recruitment pitch is separate from the evaluation part. Ah, so that we can clearly evaluate all of it. Yes. By the yes. way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Iris Bonet, professor of public policy at Harvard and author of the book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. If you have a question about what we're discussing, and in this case, it's how to run a structured fair, effective interview process, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Iris, this is all really interesting, and it's resonating with me because I have been part of both very structured and totally unstructured interview processes. Um, Can you talk a little bit, because this was you hiring your executive assistant. When you're participating in um, a search process with a team of colleagues, 
How do you translate what was your individual process to a process that involves a group? So, first of all, um, an important practice that I'm quite concerned about uh, in many organizations is the panel interview. And some many organizations think that it's more efficient um, to have, let's say, three interviewers talk to the applicant at the same time. But there's quite a bit of evidence that these three people will not come up with independent assessments because they will influence each other. Because you, Laura, might ask the applicant a question, the, the applicant might flunk at the question, and that will influence, of course, me and my judgment and my question even um, that I might want to ask the applicant. So it's much better to have three separate interviews um, rather than one kind of panel interview. Mm-hmm. Because with the panel, um, what we some of our listeners will be might be familiar with the term. We sometimes call this group think, where we all kind of the group actually falls into a trap where our aggregate aggregate assessment is not better um, because it's three of us, but it just actually is just as good as one person because we're just following the leader in that sense. So have three separate interviews. Um, it's actually not more time consuming or costly for the interviewers, just half an hour, different time slots. It's a bit more time consuming for the applicant, no question, but the applicant will get a fairer um, evaluation um, out of it than if he or she was confronted. With so it's actually in the applicant's best interest. It's absolutely in the applicant's best interest. And it is also going back to what you were saying before, that if you get to interview with three different individuals, you're also going to learn more about the organization that way. Because even if if they do practice a very disciplined interview process, in that unstructured part at the end, you get to hear about it from them without it being part of a group dynamic. That's a very good point. I honestly had not been thinking about that, but that makes complete sense to me. And also, I have to say, I've sat in so many group interviews where the group winds up talking to each other. (laughs) (laughs) And they really, they're not learning anything about the candidates. Like, they're the ones auditioning. Yeah. I mean, another myth that I might have to debunk for our listeners is that um, we often think that having a diverse panel uh, will solve our uh, unconscious bias um, challenges. But that's not really true. It turns out that it is much more important who we see than who we are, meaning whether or not we have many um, uh, male kindergarten teachers, for example, or many female engineers uh, affects our stereotypes of who we think could fit this kind of job. And that's more important, whether we ourselves are male or female. Ah, so... Help me rephrase that. So when we're searching, let's say we want to diversify our organization, and I'm hiring for elementary school teachers. Um, I don't need to necessarily, and I want more men for grades K through 3. I don't necessarily need more men on the search committee. What I need are more men who are visible in the organization to attract male applicants. That's that's exactly right. Although um, we want to differentiate in that, Having a man or somebody who looks like you on the search committee or as an interviewer can, of course, also serve as a role model. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to know why we have people there. I'm not actually saying, you know, we shouldn't have a diverse committee. But what I am saying is the diverse committee serves some purposes. Namely, it shows applicants that people like them Mm -hmm. uh, could make it in this organization, could um, could, could succeed in this organization. That's definitely a plus. But it's not solving, um, per se, 
our unconscious bias because we um, independent, almost independent, I'm simplifying a little bit, but almost independent of our own demographic characteristics, we all fall prey to the same kinds of unconscious biases. Absolutely. So I want to connect this back to something you were talking about in the beginning, which is diversifying groups. And it's something that in the book, um, you really articulate in a very clear and fascinating way about um, that there are times when it's good to create a homogenous group um, (laughs) and purposely heterogeneous groups. And so could you talk a little bit, A, about how do you assemble the group for the interview process, and in general, how we think about um, assembling teams to maximize everyone's input. Yeah. So that's actually a hard question because what I'm struggling with right now in answering is that sometimes you don't have a choice, right? Sometimes you have um, small numbers and you don't have much of a choice. But what I have done in my classroom, in fact, um, to the annoyance of my students initially, (laughs) was that I created some homogenous teams of all-male students um, because I did not want to have teams of six that consisted of five men and just one woman only. Um, So I prefer a homogenous team uh, to a very skewed team. Um, but of course, my uh, top uh, my top preference, my most preferred team would be a truly um, balanced team where we have three men and three women, or let's say four and two is also you know still okay. Three and three is better, but two, two and four is something I could totally live with. But five five plus one would be bad. So when I think of an interview team. Um, that's, of course, what I have in my mind. And I'm struggling with the answer here because um, I, I'm, sometimes people are up uh, against small numbers. So mm-hmm. I used to be, as you said, the academic dean of the Kennedy School. Um, about 25% of our faculty um, are tenured women. And so if I wanted to have two tenured women on every team, these faculty would not be able to teach or do research. Right, because there's just not enough. Members. Right, there's not enough of them to go around. <laughs> Exactly. That's what I'm saying. You know, we can't, oh, we can, uh, of course, try to get to the best place um, that we can possibly be, but sometimes we're literally constrained by numbers. One of the things that I've seen on, when I look back on interview groups that have been particularly effective, um, it's when the diversity was also in our roles and responsibilities and perspectives. So somebody was more financially oriented, somebody was more about creative problem solving, somebody was more about um, connections with the community, obviously depending on the role, but that there are other dimensions of diversity that you could bring in to create a heterogeneous group in this regard, correct? No, absolutely. Cognitive diversity is hugely important. And what makes for, that gets down to nitty-gritty a little bit, but what makes for a particularly good team is if you have overlapping um, diversities. What I mean with that is not every engineer is a white man, but we might have a female engineer, a male engineer. We might have, you know, we have these these different um, kind of connection, connection, uh, connection points um, that really kind of glues the team together. So this, I think, relates to something you talked about in the book of as you're building teams, you want to create complements but not substitutes. Yes, no, that's right. So if I want to maximize the performance of a team, um, I don't necessarily want to have, you know, 10 A performers, uh, let's say in math or in analytics. But I might want to think about, you know, what are the missing pieces in in that pie where I need, so to speak, um, every slice to be represented, whether that is analytical skills or emotional intelligence or people management, whatever it might be. But I have to add one more thing, Laura. 
people shouldn't think it's just, I mean, it is the people on the team, mm-hmm. but it's also very important how we run the team and how we run the meeting. And so for any meeting, and that's really beyond gender diversity concerns at all, but for, for any important meeting, it's actually very good practice to have a devil's advocate in the room who can help the team kind of, you know, not fall into the trap of groupthink. Mm, so somebody who's particularly listening for challenging and getting through the overly easy alignments of um, similar thinking. Yeah, that's right. And can ask some of the hard questions. And also, you know, is assigned this role. So kind of has the power of formal assignment. So isn't just somebody who randomly has to raise their hand and say, but hello, I don't think we've really thought this through. But we know that today, you know, Jamil or tomorrow, Susan um, is going to have this role. And it's actually also a good practice uh, to rotate the role. And so that also makes it so that particularly for um, somebody who's underrepresented in that group who might otherwise be looked at negatively um, for challenging people, it's actually the definition of their role that day to do that. That's exactly And so they're more likely to be embraced. Yes. So... Iris, this is all so fascinating. As I imagined, I I have a list seven pages long of additional things to explore. (laughs) And I have to imagine that our listeners are going to want to learn more about this. So in addition to your phenomenal book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design, and it was put out by what, Harvard University Press? That's right. Um, How else can people find your work or learn more about this? So at the Women in Public Policy program, we have created a public webpage, which is called the Gender Action Portal, or short gap, so the Gender Action Portal, where we summarize research for practitioners, decision makers across the sectors and really across the world on how to close gender gaps in economic participation, political opportunity, health, and education. And so anyone interested in learning more about some of the research that I discussed today can go to the uh, Gender Action Portal. It's searchable. You know, they can say, I want to learn more about maternal health care, for example, in Africa. And they can learn about that. They can learn more about women in leadership or women in negotiation. Really any, you know, not any, but any, <laughs> any of the topics. I don't think any, it but we're okay. trying hard. We're trying and they hard. can find this through your website at the Women in Public Policy Program at Harvard? Yes, they can find it through the Women and Public Policy Program or directly Gender Action Portal. Fantastic. Iris, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. And thank you all of you for listening. If you have a question about something you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'm Laura Zarrow. This has been Women at Work on SiriusXM 111. And special thanks to Iris and our whole team here on Business Radio. I love you, Patty, Tatiana, and Jackie. Welcome. Welcome.